God. Yesterday, last night, late, Ruthie and I drove in from uh, my 10-year high school reunion. (laughs) Times five. (laughs) If you've ever gone to a high school reunion, you thank God for unanswered prayer. But pray for some of our folks that are at Eight Days of Hope right now, serving down on the South Mississippi coast, rebuilding homeowners' houses in the name of Christ and just trying to be a blessing. And next Easter is just going to be unforgettable. Uh, John Cronin, John and Amanda will be here, our new worship pastor. They have purchased a home and the owner came down $25,000 on the price in this market. In this market. So um, one more confirmation uh, from the Lord. So grateful for that. Slade mentioned baptism. If you, if you would like to be baptized on Easter, we've, we've, we're making accommodation for that. We announced last week, uh, we kind of set a deadline date. We were thinking about videos, but because of the number, there will be an opportunity for each person being baptized to, to express their faith, to declare their faith in Christ and what He has done for them. But uh, if you'd like to be baptized, we really would, it would help us to know that today. So right after the service, you can go out to either the welcome desk or the other desk, the community desk out there. Let them know, and we will be with you uh, this week, and I don't think you want to miss it. And by the way, those cards, those invitations, give them to someone. And may I make a request? If you don't give, if you don't invite anyone for Easter, and they, or, they, or you do, and they cannot come or they will not come, be a part of the informal greeting team. And let's practice hospitality because on Easter, people will come in who have just had a, a family fight. People who will, will come in and they just had a bad report from a doctor. Or they've just lost their job. Or in some cases, they're actually thinking of taking their lives. And when they come on Easter and someone smiles and greets them, introduces yourself, I'm so glad you're here today. It's a, it's a voice of hope. It's a word of hope. So rather than coming in and just sitting down immediately on Easter, would you join in? If you don't have guests with you, just join in. Greet people all around you. Walk these uh, rows uh, out in the, the lobby and just say hello to people. Uh, cause people just to really feel uh, welcome. And then next Sunday, we're going to, or the Sunday after Easter, we're going to start a series in one of my favorite books of the Bible, and that is the book of Nehemiah. And your elders are going to have a special announcement about the direction of our church in the future, the next season of life in, in the ministry of the church. So I hope you're here the week after Easter. All right, Ephesians chapter 6. You have your Bible open, or it will be, it is there on the screen. Paul said this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he said, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all 
to stand firm. Now, Paul said three things there, just kind of bring to our mind uh, remembrance. First of all, he says, we're all in a battle. And some days the battle is more fierce, and we didn't choose this battle. We didn't choose to get involved in this war. We were born into it. It's a cosmic war of unseen powers in the world, waging war in the world, and many times within us ourselves. God and Satan, light and darkness, good and evil. And the stakes are the souls of people, the lives of people. And unless you believe this, unless you're aware, I'm in a battle, and this is the reason why life is so hard, you'll either become lulled to sleep or you'll become very discouraged. And I think one of the reasons sometimes we walk around defeated and discouraged is we forget who the real enemy is. We tend to think our enemy is, is a person or the media or a political party or militant Muslims or the gay agenda or atheist. The real enemy is unseen. And Satan and God are not equal uh, enemies. God is a zillion times more powerful than Satan. And for his own purposes, he allows Satan to be active in the world. He is muzzled to some extent, and someday the Lord will do completely away with him. But until that time, Satan tends to use you and me as pawns. He cannot go against God. So if you cannot harm someone, sometimes you go after their children. And if he can damage your life or discourage you or some way just bring you down, it's his way of getting against uh, the Lord. He is after your marriage. He's after your career. He's after your health. He's after your finances. And he would be thrilled if you just took your own life. We're in a battle. Here's the second thing that Paul said in that passage. And that is, we need to face life from a position of strength. I mean, we already do that. Those of us thinking about retirement, we try to make sure finances are adequate. We protect our children. We train up our children uh, for their future. We update our resumes. We work with our health. And Paul says this, be strengthened with God's power, God's strength, which is the gospel. It's the power of God at work in, it, in our lives. And you notice what he said. He said, put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against the strategies and tricks of the devil. Satan is not afraid of you. He is afraid of who is in you. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And he says, we need to be dressed for battle. No NFL lineman will go out on the field to play without a helmet, right? Or without putting on pads. Soldiers do not go to war without making sure they're armored up and have their weapons with them. And we have what's called the armor of God. And so we just kind of, in this series, we've kind of traced through, walked through the various pieces of armor, and we need every single piece of it. So for example, he says, stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. If you've ever watched weightlifters, they wear a belt to strengthen their core, give them a sense of stability. And ancient Roman soldiers would often wear a belt that they could hang in their, their weapons from, gave them a sense of strength and stability. And our belt is truth. It is truth. And if your life is not based on truth, you're building your life on something that's very unstable. Remember the story Jesus told about two men who built houses, one on sand, one on a solid rock, and the hurricanes came, and there was an earthquake, and the man who built his life on sand, the entire house fell. That's a picture of life built on anything but truth. 
At the same time, the man who built his house on a rock, on truth, withstood the storms that come in life. So we build our life on truth, put on the belt of truth. How do you do that? I think you remind yourself, I know the truth, the truth does not change, and the truth cannot be defeated. And he talks about this breastplate of righteousness that protects our heart. He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. How do you do that? Well, you remind yourself, I am accepted not because of my righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness. He is my righteousness. And he says, put shoes on your feet, put on the readiness of, that's given by the gospel of peace, put on gospel shoes of peace. How, how do you do that? You're ready to share the gospel. You're ready to tell someone your story. You're ready to explain the peace that God has given you, peace with God, peace with other people, reconciliation, and peace within yourself, the peace of God. He says, in all circumstances, shake, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You know what flaming darts are? They're mental arrows that are thrown at us in life. Doubt is a flaming dart. Did God really say? Can you really trust God? Isn't that just your interpretation? Maybe that was for another time. Did God really mean it? That's, that's a flaming arrow. Discouragement is a flaming dart. You're never going to get any better. Things are never going to change. It's only going to get worse. Why do you even try? That's a flaming dart that placed in our, shot into our mind. Delay is a flaming dart. Why is this taking so long? I just want it to happen by now. It hasn't happened fiery dart. Difficulty. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to make my marriage work? Why is it so hard to get a job? Difficulty. That's a, that's a flaming dart thrown at us. Depression. A flaming dart. I just feel like giving up. I feel like it's not worth it. I feel like I, I, I'm not, I can't put any effort into it anymore. And he says, take up the shield of faith. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the gospel, God's love, God's gift of you and sal- for you and salvation. Trust God's love and His power. And then He says, "Take up the helmet of salvation." Because if you get a head wound, there are not many headless people walking around today. So He says, "Put the helmet of salvation." Remind yourself, Jesus is going to win this thing. Someone told me a long time ago. Said, "I don't understand the Book of Revelation except for one thing." Jesus wins. And you just remind yourself of that. And then he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, the word that he uses for a sword is not for one of the big, broad swords that you might see and um, William Wallace would have used in Braveheart. It's a, it's a short sword. And swords are designed not for shaving or digging or whittling, swords are designed for one thing, killing. So what do we use the sword, which is God's word, what do we use a sword for? It's not to kill other people. No, we're willing to die for other people. We don't kill other people for the gospel. Swords are designed for killing, and the word of God is designed for killing our sin, killing our fear. John Owen, the old Puritan, used to say, you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And what God does is he takes his word and uses it to pierce, to penetrate uh, 
our lives show us ourselves and deal with fears and guilt and shame and doubts, all those flaming things that we put up the shield of faith, but at the same time kill our, our sin. It's a very interesting thing that when Paul writes about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he doesn't use the normal, regular word in the Greek language for word, which is logos. He uses the word rhema. And the scholars tell us that there's a lot of overlap between these two words, but there is a distinction. Logos refers to the entire Word of God. It's all truth. But rhema refers to an utterance, a spoken word, a word that God might bring to your attention. And some of you know the experience of being reading your Bible and something jumps out at you in the Scripture and you feel like God has addressed you personally. That's a rhema that has come to you. Never contradicts the rest of God's Word. And God will use a specific verse or a phrase in a verse to just pierce our heart and deal with something going on in our life. And I think the best way to possibly explain this is to simply ask my wife to tell how that has happened with her and share something of her story. So, honey, come. For many years, I lived in an emotional, physical, and spiritual prison. And over the years, I've discovered that there are many people just like me Many of us find ourselves experiencing hurtful memories of the past. Sadly, some of us are still wearing masks covering up those wounds of life. We can appear happy on the outside, but inside we are dying from fears, loss, and sadness. We feel like we're spiraling down paths of depression, physical illnesses, and marital problems. We become critical and harsh, and we find ourselves trapped in a prison, not knowing how to escape. And that is my story. I grew up in Oklahoma. My father was a 100% disabled veteran from World War II, and he dealt daily with his own inabilities and self-esteem by turning to alcohol and gambling. And it was normal for me to see loaded guns on the table and to see physical fighting. I wanted my father's love and acceptance so much that I would ride the city bus downtown and stay with him at the pool hall and sleep under the tables where I would be safe. My early Christmases were spent at the pool halls where I received my baby dolls for the year from Santa. And what inner strength my father had went towards dealing with my mother, who had mental illness, and my little sister, who was born with learning disabilities and later mental illness. It was apparent I was not his immediate concern. There was no extended family around to help. My mother was from Michigan, and my father's family lived in another part of Oklahoma. My mother's sister, Treva, entered the federal prison in Florida where she was in, when she was in her 20s and died there. My father had extended family in the prison system as well. We lived on Social Security and veteran disability checks, which meant we never really had a lot of extra money. 
For most of my life, if we didn't grow it, catch it, or kill it, we didn't eat it. And for 20 years, I lived in an emotionally, physically abusive home. I heard words like, I don't love you, I never will. You will never be able to change my mind. I never wanted you. I'll never forget the day that I found out that I was pregnant with you and had to marry your father. And why did you have to be born so perfect? Well, you may not be perfect, but you, and you are stupid, and you can't read, and I hate you. So I never learned to love, trust, or forgive, only to fear. Fear of others and myself. Growing up in the same house, attending the same school, provided some security, but also a lot of shame. You see, my classmates noticed my clothes were hand-sewn by my mother from the curtains their mothers had thrown away. After dark, we would roam the streets and find the curtains by digging in their trash. I wanted to run away from my present life. I tried very hard at school. A high school teacher and counselor noticed potential in me and helped me to attain scholarships to a university. Immediately, my insecurities began to swell up in me. No one on either side of my family had ever attended college, let alone completed high school. Why would a school want me to attend? What were their motives? Would I ever be able to measure up to those university girls? And what if they found out about my family? And I found myself extremely consumed with insecurities. After applying to numerous universities, a private Christian university offered me enough scholarship money to attend. And I thought attending college would be a solution to my brokenness. But after my first year in college, my world began to slowly crash and I had an emotional breakdown. I dropped out of school, and with no place to go, I went home. Even at the age of 19, the abuse continued. My mother was extremely jealous of me and was angry I came home. I didn't have the strength to fight the sexual advances and physical abuses from some family members. I didn't have a car, so public buses were my transportation, and I found work, and I went to a local junior college in order to keep myself busy. The county health doctor put me on some medicine and patted me on my back and said, hang in there, it's going to get better. I felt alone, scared, confused, and mad. My life didn't get any better. I still struggled with my life, probing into every sin possible. I became a very determined person to succeed at any cost. My heart was hard, and it was cynical. I had determined I was not going to let any person or thing interrupt my life ever again. I realized I needed to leave my environment, so I called the university and they graciously allowed me to come back with all my previous scholarships. And then, in September of 1972, God paid me a visit. Through the friendship and prayers of Christians, 
I began to understand about a love I could not comprehend. A love not only in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I discovered what love is, that Jesus loved me and sent his son as a sacrifice for my sins. Now, acknowledging my sins wasn't difficult for me because I had discovered the truth of Romans 3.23, that I had fallen, that I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I wanted God's love, but didn't understand how he could, as an almighty God, forgive me and all the wrongful things that I had done. And what about the people in my family and others who had ruined my life by making me into an emotional cripple? Why would he want to? But by faith, one Wednesday night, when I was 19 years old, I received Christ as my Savior and Lord, and I knew my sins were forgiven. I knew he loved me, and I knew I could trust him. But the rub came when I realized while studying the Bible that he commanded me to forgive as he had forgiven me. And I got angry. I yelled and shouted and stomped, it's your job, God, it's not mine. Why would I want to trust or forgive someone when the outcome would only bring me pain and shame? I wanted all of God, all of his love and all of his peace and all of his joy, but I wasn't willing to let go of my right of unforgiveness. And then I read Matthew 6, 14 through 15 in the word of God. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That was a tough and amazing statement. And I felt guilty because I could not forgive the way Christ had forgiven me. And I felt discouraged because no one seemed to be able to give me the key I needed to unlock my heart from the prison of bitterness that held it captive. The anxiety was not only affecting me emotionally, but physically and spiritually. And the last thing I wanted to do was to forgive. I just wanted to keep it buried and let it be. Yet forgiveness was required of me. God knew in order to break me out of my prison and restore me to become whole like him, I had to forgive. You see, Matthew 6 doesn't teach us that our eternal destiny is based on forgiving people. However, it does teach us that our fellowship with God will be damaged if we refuse to forgive. It is a very serious matter to know that one cannot be right with God if we are unforgiving of others. I wanted to be restored, completely whole in Christ. I wanted to receive his blessings. I didn't want my unforgiveness to keep me imprisoned in my past. 
I felt that my family and abuse was an obstacle to my freedom of healing. But that was not true. My unforgiveness was. And this is what I learned how to begin to be set free from this. I first had to discover what forgiveness is not. It is not this cover-up game of let's pretend it didn't happen. And forgiveness is not this teeth-gritting determination to keep on going no matter what. And forgiveness is not the passive resolve to wait the problem out, hoping time will heal. It is not excusing people, and it does not mean to immediately trust people again. Forgiveness means to send away, to give up, to keep no longer, and to let it go. And forgiveness is a choice to give up your right to get even with and hold in debt someone who has wronged you. It's something you must decide to do, and it's a process, a decision, an action, followed by a process. When I realized that forgiveness is something that I do out of the obedience to the Lord because he forgave me, the grace to forgive came. I told God how I felt. God, I have been mad at you since my childhood with all the abuse and the unfairness Forgive me. And it was so freeing to realize I could be honest with God. He knew how I felt. I couldn't surprise, shock, or disappoint him. And that is when the cleansing process began. I put those who abused me into God's hands and let him deal with them. And I had to remember my own healing does not depend on the omission of guilt or an apology from the offending person. It depended on my obedience to God. Yes, there are people I was not able to confront, but through prayer, I told God my fears, my disappointments, my hurts, and sometimes it was daily. I remember my husband Sam getting on his knees day after day to verbally forgive a few people for Jesus' sake. He told me it just took him longer with some people. It's a process. God's design for our lives is to be freed from our sins and glorify him. If there is unforgiveness in your life, you are not free. Scripture says, the truth is what sets you free. The truth of his word is what sets you free. You need to do like I did. Stop lying to God. Pray to God. Confess your sins and wait on him. And Romans 12, 18 from his word says, if it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Someone said, the most important thing to remember about forgiveness 
is that forgiveness doesn't make the other person right. It makes you free. Pray with me. Father God, I want to thank you for being all-sufficient, for all of our inadequacies. And I want to thank you for being a burden-bearer when I feel and when we feel so heavy-laden. And thank you for being our comforter who wipes away every tear and every sorrow and our healer of our wounds and the lifter of our heads, Lord Jesus, when solutions seem impossible. Help us each to realize that we are chosen, not forsaken, that you are with us and not against us. You are Lord, the most high God, Jesus, who reigns over all. Amen. I wonder if God's word has pierced your heart. And there's someone you need to forgive. And unforgiveness needs to be killed. Ruthie said it's a decision followed by a process. And sometimes I've had to get on my knees numerous times. And once again, say for Jesus' sake, I, I forgive that individual. This is the power of God's word. You can trust it. But a Bible sitting on the shelf is not a sword that kills anything. You can have a hundred Bibles sitting on a shelf. It's like having a sword that's sheathed and you're going into battle without anything at all. And God's word becomes like a sword when it's there for you. You've memorized it, and it's, a, it's there in your heart. Remember when Jesus in the temptation, the wilderness, just after his baptism, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness, and he's confronted by the devil over and over and over, and each time he quoted a passage, a verse, a fragment of a verse to the devil. He used his sword. Um, now, granted, Jesus had the entire Bible memorized. He wrote it. But he had those available. He didn't say, well, I think it's in Deuteronomy. Let me see if I can find it. No, he, he had it there available. So what I want to do just to conclude this message is I want to encourage you to begin to memorize God's Word. Take a three-by-five card. Take a small card. Write a verse on it that deals with an area where you're, you're dealing with. Uh, if you're dealing with uh, worry. It might be Philippians 4, 6, and 7. If you're dealing with lust, it might be that beatitude that says, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Oh, I want to see God. So Lord, make me pure in heart. Someone told me that if you, someone told me that we'll spend six months sitting at stoplights in our life. 
What if during that time you're sitting at a stoplight, you took advantage of that, those few moments, and you had a little card right there on your dashboard or on the visor, and you just brought it down and you read that, maybe read it a couple of times before you know it. You've memorized a verse of Scripture. If you did those once a week, you've got 52 swords in your hand to use immediately. So I encourage you to do that. You say, do I have to memorize the entire Bible? No. But you can memorize those sections that specially uh, deal with areas where you you find yourself in the battle. Now, Paul concludes this section. Let's just throw that last verse on the screen. Paul concludes this entire section by saying, by telling us how we actually put on the armor, praying at all times in the Spirit. Let's just, would you read this with me? Let's read together. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. The words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So I put the armor on, maybe early in the morning, say, Lord, today it's going to be an absolutely insane schedule, and I need all the strength. I need to remember, I need to preach the gospel to myself. I I need to remember you're in control. I need to remember Jesus is going to win and you're going to walk with me through every moment of this. And I'm going to face temptations here and there and I will be lied to by the evil one who will tell me there's more pleasure in sin than in not sin, who will deceive me with fear. And I need need the helmet of salvation. I, I need a shield of faith. So Lord, would you please help me? What I'm doing is I'm putting on the armor of God. And that passage said, says, uh, pray that words will be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Let's pray for each other that we can share Christ. As God opens the door, as he gives opportunity, let's pray that we will have words given to us that we can say exactly what a person needs to hear to take the next step toward Christ. Let's pray for each other in that way. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, some of us feel like we have been stabbed, pierced, and you've called us to something very different. And we thank you for the power of your word that it can be trusted. It has all authority. We can stand on it and we stand under it. So Lord, we pray that this week would you give us open mouths open eyes to see opportunity to speak in your name, to influence someone toward you. We pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness, not fearfulness. And for those, Lord, who have heard you speak to them through the passage that Ruthie read through her own story, I pray, Lord, that we would be not just hearers of the word, but we would be doers, not deceiving ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask the worship team, if you would, to come on up. We prepare just to sing to the Lord and declare that our need is for Him. He says, Sam, when, when do you do this kind of thing? What, 
Well, I have some cards, and I've written some verses down that deal with areas. Everybody fights a battle on a different battlefield. And on the battlefields where I fight the battle, I have some verses written down that, that I'm memorizing, and I find if I would just read them and read them without, almost without effort, they're planted in my mind. I try to do this early in the morning. First thing when I get up, I go to a table, sit down, I open my Bible, I have a little journal, I write down what I believe God is teaching me, and I commit the day to Him. I encourage you to do that. I challenge you uh, to do that. Let's stand together, and let's sing to the Lord.
Amen. We'll invite the prayer team, if you would, to come forward. If we can serve you in some way by praying for you, we would love to do that. I want to give you a blessing that comes right from the end of uh, 2 Corinthians, where Paul said, May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of us this week. And all of God's people said, yeah, amen, amen. God bless you. Awesome. When she writes better sermons, I'll preach better sermons.